Professor Snyder, your work came into my awareness via the Waking Up podcast. After two or three listens, I purchased On Tyranny and devoured it several times over. I actually quoted the ninth lesson, Be Kind to Our Language, at some extent in my first public essay. I extrapolated your idea of successive images on television to complement my plea for peers to redefine their relationship to social media. Chancebychance.com forward slash essays. You've become a great inspiration for me, and I'd like to schedule a phone interview. This must be a busy time of year for you as a professor, but please let me know if you can find a spare 30 minutes during the upcoming holiday season to field a few original, well-researched questions. The two main topics of conversation would be an overview of your entrance to the professional field as a young adult, and some specific remedies to the deterioration of institutions at the hand of modern technology such as social media. I'm not Sam Harris, Bill Maher, or any kind of media icon. An appearance on my podcast would not necessarily facilitate a major expansion of your audience. I am, however, a student of the world and a firm believer in truth, the same truth you espouse. The podcast serves as both a documentation of my self-education, I'm 21 and have opted against college, at least for the time being, and a resource for other young creators in art and business to gain insight that can be applied in their own lives. Thank you for your consideration, and keep up the great work. Your fan, Chance Gilliam, chancebychance.com. Greetings, sapiens. This is Chance Gilliam welcoming you to the Chance by Chance podcast and wishing everyone a happy new year. Safe travels if you're on the road this week, maybe returning home or to school. Stay warm out there. Enjoy the time you have with family and cherish the good things in your life. Returned guests will have noticed that this episode has already begun to follow a different format than usual. If you're new to Chance by Chance, thanks for paying a visit. We're happy to have you here. This is a resource for young creators learning to navigate the professional field. I share conversations that contribute to my own self-education and do my best to distill that information so you can benefit from it as well. If the guest's interests align with your own, that's fantastic but there's always actionable items for anyone. The goal is that you take away even one piece of practical information you can apply in your own work, whether that work takes the form of art, business, or, most likely, some combination of the two. After the episode, you're invited to get in touch at chanceperiodgilliam at outlook.com to let me know what you liked, what you didn't like, and any takeaways from the podcast. Episodes up to this point have typically consisted of long-form interviews with minimal editing. There will be more of that in the future, but I had fun experimenting with my presentation here. At its core, this episode is an exploration of a selection of Timothy Snyder's work. He's the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale and a Committee on Conscious member at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Professor Snyder is also the author of several award-winning books, including the 2017 number one New York Times bestseller, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. It was my favorite new book of 2017, and perhaps the best book I read all year. Certainly it was the most influential. Professor Snyder created a manifesto for modern times, transferring his expert understanding of 20th century Eastern European history to instruct us now and into the future. My biggest takeaway from the book 
which is perfectly structured and easy to digest at just over 100 pages, is that everything we do is a choice. Preserving a democracy requires involvement. Small efforts like making eye contact with your fellow citizens on the street and responsibly sourcing your news media are as important as showing up to rallies and voting in formal elections. Reading books, occasionally refraining from the internet, and taking time for reflection can be as important as writing to your elected representatives. The attitude of engaged, democratic citizens is one of tireless investigation. As threats to our institutions mount, we can take small steps every day to gain momentum and preserve our values over the long term. Each of the 20 lessons covers a specific concept, behavior, or routine you can add to your arsenal. The book trains us to be watchful for the encroachment of insidious forms of government in our politics, so we can ensure that democracy does survive long enough for our grandchildren to truly experience. A good summary of Professor Snyder's goal in writing the book is present in its introduction. Quote, The Founding Fathers tried to protect us from the threat they knew, the tyranny that overcame ancient democracy. Today our political order faces new threats, not unlike the totalitarianism of the 20th century. We are no wiser than the Europeans who saw a democracy yield to fascism, Nazism, or communism. Our one advantage is that we might learn from their experience. End quote. As I mentioned in my email to Professor Snyder, which I shared at the start of this introduction, his book came into my awareness by way of Sam Harris's podcast, Waking Up, of which I am a regular listener. The idea to include that message to Professor Snyder was directly influenced by a recent visit to my alma mater, St. Paul Conservatory for Performing Artists in St. Paul, Minnesota. The charter school puts out an open call to alumni and organizes a panel for the purpose of allowing current juniors and seniors to pose questions about life after high school. I think it happens once, maybe twice a year. It did me worlds of good my senior year in 2015, and I've been privileged enough to participate twice now on the panel, most recently, mid-December 2017. There were all sorts of great questions covering the many curiosities young adults have before leaving high school. It was particularly motivating for me to see that a small handful of students knew of this podcast, and one individual expressed interest in its origins. There was a student who asked about travel, and another wanting to know about alternatives to college education both of which I took some pride in speaking to, seeing that I was the only one on a large panel that has, as of this recording, never enrolled. After the formal session, students were invited to approach us individually and ask any remaining questions. There were a couple of students that did approach me and described a desire to start their own podcasts, seeking some advice to get started. Today, I'll be covering the backstory to this interview with Professor Snyder, aiming to explain parts of my process. We'll look at the groundwork laid for the episode, including preliminary research and question preparation. I'm not an authority on podcasts, but I have learned from the last year of experience, and you might hear a thing or two that helps you get your idea going. Furthermore, I'll do my best to enliven the spirit of on tyranny by encouraging you to pursue your ambitions with vigilance and rigor, investigating your influences thoroughly, and courageously offering your contributions to society. The world adapts to your every move. We're creating the future with every decision, and that means approaching our creative projects responsibly, however grim or lighthearted the subject matter may be. 
A sincere thank you to those who offered kind words at SPCPA. Honestly, that's what it's all about. Thanks to my old teacher, Joey Clark, for getting me involved. And thank you for listening. If you're just here looking for Professor Snyder, thanks for sticking with us through the introduction, and feel free to skip ahead. His segments begin approximately 18 minutes into the episode. Shortly after sending my email, there was a response at the top of my inbox. Professor Snyder, hard at work on his next book, The Road to Unfreedom, thanked me for the good word and agreed to a phone interview. He listed a few dates and times to choose from. I referenced my calendar to decide on the best opening and committed to it. With that, preparation was underway. From the moment an interview is set, I'll begin regular study of material leading up to the day of the conversation, always focusing my attention further as the date approaches. Early on, it feels important to familiarize myself with as much of the subject's work as I can, taking general notes and highlighting places to revisit. Within the last few days before an interview, I dig into the best of those resources and start to formulate questions. I organize thoughts and concepts to explore, always including more than I'll be able to get around to in the allotted time frame. I order the topics from greatest to least importance, letting personal curiosity serve as my guide. That said, in the flow of a conversation, it's also important to explore the avenues that present themselves. Strictly reading questions verbatim from a page gets rigid. Flexibility to follow unexpected trails is crucial. That's where active listening comes in. Give the guest your full attention and dig into what details interest you. Another reason I take time to conduct thorough research is so I can avoid common topics. For instance, in listening to a variety of podcast interviews, I might notice that the guest always gets asked the same question. It may well have an interesting answer, but to make the most of my time with someone, I like to skip those areas and trust my listeners can find the content elsewhere. If necessary, I'll reference that topic during the episode. Beginning the research process is as easy as running a simple web search. The first result for this interview was timothysnyder.org. It was well curated, appeared regularly updated, and was the perfect place to start. I like when people have their own websites because it clearly shows what they want you to see and what they take pride in. There were lists of Tim's books, events, lectures, writings, and other media, all of which included links, allowing me to branch out from there. Of course, there was also a bio, which always holds clues. To introduce you to the scope of Professor Snyder's involvement in the global community, I'll read his bio now. Quote, Timothy Snyder is one of the leading American historians and public intellectuals, and enjoys perhaps greater prominence in Europe, the subject of most of his work. He is the Richard C. Levin Professor of History at Yale University and a permanent fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Snyder received his Bachelor of Arts in European History and Political Science from Brown University in 1991. He then became a British Marshall Scholar at the University of Oxford, where he completed his doctorate in 1997. Before joining the faculty at Yale in 2001, he held fellowships in Paris, Vienna, and Warsaw, and an academy scholarship at Harvard. He speaks five and reads ten European languages. Among his publications are six single-authored award-winning books, all of which have been translated. Snyder is also the co-editor of two books. 
Snyder sits on the editorial boards of the Journal of Modern European History and East European Politics and Societies. His scholarly articles have appeared in Past and Present, the Journal of Cold War Studies, and other journals. He has also written for the New York Review of Books, Foreign Affairs, The Times Literary Supplement, The Nation, and The New Republic, as well as for the New York Times, the International Herald Tribune, the Wall Street Journal, and other newspapers. Snyder was the recipient of an inaugural Andrew Carnegie Fellowship in 2015 and received the Havel Foundation Prize the same year. He has received state orders from Estonia, Lithuania, and Poland. He is a member of the Committee on Conscience of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, is the faculty advisor for the Fortinoff Collection of Holocaust Testimonies at Yale, and sits on the advisory councils of the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research and other organizations. Professor Snyder teaches undergraduate and graduate-level courses in modern Eastern European political history and graduate seminars on the Holocaust, on East European history as global history, and all the dynamics of international crisis in European political history. He has received the Literature Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Leipzig Book Prize for European Understanding, the Hannah Arendt Award for Political Thought, the Lithuanian Diplomacy Star, and more than 30 other such honors. End quote. To cite the range of sources I arrived at and took notes on, here's a short list categorized by platform. On Tyranny, publication date February 28, 2017, through a combination of searching an online news tab and scrolling through Professor Snyder's Twitter feed, at Timothy D. Snyder, I explored articles from the New York Times, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Salon, and Slate. I listened to Professor Snyder's appearances on the Chicago Humanities Festival podcast, Slate's Live at Politics and Prose podcast, The Art of Charm, Two Dope Boys in a Podcast, awesome name, as well as Waking Up with Sam Harris. On YouTube, I viewed his interviews on Real Time with Bill Maher, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, and CNN with Anna Cabrera. I also discovered Timothy Snyder Speaks. Professor Snyder recently started his own YouTube channel and shares episodes, 10 to 20 minutes in length, that are a cross between television interviews and lectures, covering whatever's on his mind. He says sharing them publicly helps him think the issues out for himself. Wherever possible, I printed copies of written material and took notes directly on those pages. For the auditory media, it was a matter of transcribing quotes in my notebook. When everything was in order, I arranged all those notes in a new outline. That draft was primarily about cleanliness, so I wouldn't be flipping back and forth through tattered stacks of paper during the interview. I prefer to handwrite my outlines to help with retention. Looking over the questions I had selected, there seemed to be two main topics— The first had to do with Professor Snyder's young adulthood. That era of a person's life is the foremost consideration of this podcast for a couple of reasons. For one thing, it's covered hardly anywhere else. Unless the individual has written a memoir or autobiography, or they were still relatively young when they achieved their level of status, facts about their early life tend to be sparse. Most of the time, the only information I can find about a person's young adulthood is on Wikipedia, and even then it consists of a birthplace, maybe a high school, and then jumps ahead to college before quickly plowing forward into their professional careers. My curiosity, however, lies in that window between high school graduation and entry to the professional field. Like many listening, I'm there right now. 
The culture I've grown up in has always claimed that we can be whatever we want to be. There are certainly limitations to that truth, and our social systems are coming face to face with them in many respects, but it appears true overall, especially now with the increased democratization of information and resources via the internet. There are an infinite number of pathways for a young person to pursue. The crux of the matter is that we can only choose one path at any given time. I often fall prey to decision fatigue and end up doing a whole lot of nothing after spinning my wheels for a while, trying to make progress in 30 separate directions. My personal insecurity relates to commitment. I have a difficult time chipping away at a dream over the long term because I worry it means forsaking another opportunity somewhere else. It does, but that's okay. That's life. Productivity equates to focus. It helps to talk to people who have been where I am now and perhaps felt something similar. It helps simply to see that bright, creative people have made it through this confusing but incredibly rewarding entry to adulthood, finding their own unique way to navigate the professional field and contribute to our world wholeheartedly. The other main segment I noticed in my outline consisted of questions related to On Tyranny and the articles I had read. I wanted to take the opportunity to flesh out a few ideas that had caught my attention. So, on a warm December morning in Cocoa Beach, Florida, I dialed up Professor Snyder's line from the back seat of my car with notes spread out next to me. I fired up my recording device, and here's what followed. Again, education and young adulthood is the focal point of this podcast, so it was the natural place to lead off. Answers are meant to be instructive in the sense that they can help you and I determine our next step at any given time. It's about gaining perspective from another person's story and paying close attention to what details you find significant. I knew Professor Snyder was born in southwestern Ohio and had graduated from Centerville High School, but the information I had found all skipped directly from there to college degrees and his related achievements. I wanted to shade in his decision-making process during that empty time frame. What were his intentions after leaving high school, and how did he go about realizing them? Certainly, finishing high school, I didn't think that I was going to be some authority figure that, you know, I'd be talking on a podcast 30 years later about what it was like to be in high school. I graduated from high school in 1987, which was still what, what seemed like the Cold War. People were still preoccupied with with nuclear war, um, as people are starting to become preoccupied with nuclear war again. What was going through my mind? I mean, I, I was a kid who thought he could do everything, who was going to, like, go out to the East Coast and... Um, you know, and show his stuff. And I was also a kid who was, who didn't really know anything about the world. Um, and he was about to be dropped into a much bigger and wider set of concerns than he was really prepared for. The main thing which was different between then and now is I thought, like at the time, I thought it'll all come naturally. And like a lot of teenagers, I thought, well, I basically understand things and I'm smart and it'll all come to me. And the main thing that I learned, you know, in the years after that was that I had to kind of get myself organized and not imagine that my own ideas were always the right ideas and and organize my time and my effort a little bit and actually try to become someone rather than just letting things come to me and imagine that I'd always be able to deal with them. That concept of organizing time and effort stands out to me. Oftentimes, we're told to let the chips fall where they may. It's well-intentioned and the logic is sound, but there's more to the story. Life does take unexpected twists and turns. Even with a clear plan, realizing your goal 
exactly the way you imagined it is improbable. Interests gradually develop as we mature. Plans change, whether it's your idea of a career or simply the course you take to reach it. Unexpected events do occur. Family members get sick. You might take on shitty jobs to pay your bills. We have little control over such developments, so worrying about them is no use. Whatever happens, happens. My understanding of Professor Snyder's point, however, is that throughout it all, we need to take responsibility for our situation and return to our intentions when we're inevitably thrown off track. Finding success is really a matter of initiative. You won't stumble into it. It's the difference between working those shitty but necessary jobs into conserving resources or buying scratch-offs with high hopes of early retirement. We need to adapt to the unexpected, but keep our eyes up, focusing on the place we'd like to go, and making good choices that are likely to lead us there. The future is uncertain, but it's important to always be working toward something. Let's hear more about that. I think it's important to be trying to do one thing even if you end up doing something else. You know, when you're still in high school, the structure is there, and so you can rebel against the structure if you want. But after that, the structure is not really there, and so there's not really anything you're rebelling against, and so you end up kind of, you know, just rebelling against yourself, and it's all kind of circular. You know, in my life, the way it's basically been is that I thought I was doing something, but I ended up doing something else. But, you know, it's important to be trying to do something. And then when you're trying to do something, you realize, okay, this isn't exactly the right thing. I should be, I should actually be doing this other thing. But if you're not trying to do one thing, you know, then the other thing doesn't, doesn't occur to you. You know, so I went off to college thinking I was going to, thinking I was going to be a lawyer, which, you know, um, never, never happened, which I think is a good thing. And then I thought in, in college, I thought I was going to be a diplomat, which also never happened, which is, I think, definitely a good thing. You know, and then I went off to grad school thinking, I'm going to spend a few years in Europe, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to go into government service, and that never happened. But I was preparing myself for various things, and then the fact that I was kind of working on myself meant that I was, meant that I saw other things, you know. And so I eventually became a historian, but I didn't set out to do that. But I could never have become a historian if I wasn't, you know, if I wasn't trying to get a grip on myself and make myself get ready for, for, for other stuff. Oh, doggy dog, do I know all about rebelling against myself? Feeling dissatisfied with the two promoted paths go to college, or enter a career field, I left high school seeking an alternative through travel and exposure to many industries. It's been incredibly insightful, and I've learned a lot over the past two years, but I now see the need to focus my efforts somewhere, which is part of my reinvestment in this platform. You can do many things in life, but only one at a time. The paradox of choice is that the more options we have, the harder it is to actually choose, and that makes finding a place to concentrate your time and attention rather difficult if you're still searching for the realm in which to do so. The antidote, I believe, is exposing yourself to many areas of interest in a concentrated period of time, and there is no better arena for that than travel. Eastern Europe became not only Professor Snyder's area of expertise, but his home for a time. I wanted to know what brought him there initially. I got lucky, really, because I knew I was interested in the wider world. You know, I grew up in the Cold War. I was the last Cold War generation. I knew I was interested in the Soviet Union. I knew I wanted to learn Russian. And then what happened in the 80s when I was in college in the late 80s is that that world opened up and I could go there. And I think, you know, that particular moment will never happen again, but I think everybody, as they come of age, you know, can look around the world and say, hmm, what's interesting now? You know, like it could be China. 
or it could be Korea, you know, or it, you could decide that it's Russia or whatever, you know. But I, but I think what I what I managed to hit was that conjunction of me being ready to go out in the world and there being a place which I knew I was interested in, and then just going there. So I mean, I was lucky enough to do graduate school in in, in England, and then um, and from there I could I could wander around Europe. I mean, that made all the difference for me. I'm still. In terms of the languages I know, um, and the friends that I have, and the work that I do, I'm still, I'm still living from that. I'm still living from that. And, you know, it's, it's part of the story is that a lot of that time I was in Europe, I wasn't doing anything in particular. In the, I mean, I was working, I was learning languages, I was like, I had various gigs, but I didn't have, you know, I didn't settle down, right? If yeah. I settled down in, when I was 22 or 23, then my life would be, to- would be totally different. I had several years when I was away before I came back to the U.S., and that, as you say, that did really make all the difference. Lesson 16 of On Tyranny is learn from peers in other countries. Going on from there, Professor Snyder writes, quote, Keep up your friendships abroad or make new friends in other countries. The present difficulties in the United States are an element of a larger trend, and no country is going to find a solution by itself. Make sure you and your family have passports. History, which for a time seemed to be running from west to east, now seems to be moving from east to west. Everything that happens here seems to happen there first. The fact that most Americans do not have passports has become a problem for American democracy. Sometimes Americans say that they do not need travel documents because they prefer to die defending freedom in America. These are fine words, but they miss an important point. The fight will be a long one. Even if it does require sacrifice, It first demands sustained attention to the world around us, so that we know what we are resisting and how best to do so. So having a passport is not a sign of surrender. On the contrary, it is liberating, since it creates the possibility of new experiences. It allows us to see how other people, sometimes wiser than we, react to similar problems. Since so much of what has happened in the last year is familiar to the rest of the world or from recent history, we must observe and listen. End quote. In full favor of that explanation, I asked Professor Snyder to extrapolate on it. What makes travel so necessary? I mean, do you never look at yourself in the mirror, right? Huh. I mean, travel is like looking yourself in the mirror. You can't see yourself unless you can see yourself from somewhere else. And Americans can't see America unless they can see it from somewhere else. And it's, I mean, if you're from Kansas, it's good to go to Rhode Island. And if you're from Maine, it's good to go to Texas or whatever. That helps a lot too. I think all Americans should should drive across the, the whole country once in you know once in their lives at least. The very basic thing is you can't really see yourself unless you can go somewhere else and and start to think a little bit about how other people do things. And then that helps you to relativize the way things are done in your own country. And then once you relativize it, you can think about it and you can make decisions. You can say, okay, I like that part more than this part. I think we need more of this and we need we need we need less of that. Instead of just taking everything for granted or you know seeing everything as natural or just rebelling against everything, which kind of comes down to the same thing. Because if you rebel against everything, you're going to fail. And if you if you accept everything, you're you're also going to fail. It's a matter of like being able to see what you think you want more and what you want less of. And traveling really really helps for it helps for that. Um, I think it also kind of helps emotional well being. You know, because like you can you can sit where you are and you can think about how things are done in, the, in somewhere else, and that can just like give you a moment of calm. It also helps the way you argue. You know, because you 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 can see what's possible and what's not possible. One of my personal obsessions is the railway. You know, our railways are terrible, but there's no reason why they have to be. 
I mean, if yeah. you've been on the train, in, if you've been on the train in Japan, you know, and you see how like every 20 minutes there's a there's a super fast train going from every major city, every other major city, and they're always on time, and they're always clean, they're always quiet, they're always beautiful. It, it, you know that can be done because you've seen it, and then you think, okay, well, there's no, you know, we're like this because we've chosen to be like this, but we don't have to be like this. So there's there's all that. I also, I mean, it's a simple thing. It's an adventure. You know, it's an adventure which kind of forces yourself to get yourself together. If you go off to Europe or if you go off to, you know, Southeast Asia or whatever, if you go hiking the Canadian Rockies, it forces you to get your passport together, to get your to get your backpack together, to get your stuff together, to do a little bit of planning, you know, and then it gives you something to remember when you're later, when, when you're when you're looking back later. This message of community and interconnectedness is starkly different than what we often see portrayed in media, not only on the news, but also in works of fiction. I used this as a transition to the second part of our conversation and brought up the first of those topics I had prepared. Dystopias. To set the stage, I'd like to read excerpts of an article from The Guardian titled, Hitler's World May Not Be So Far Away. It was taken from Professor Snyder's book, Black Earth. Quote, Most of us would like to think that we possess a moral instinct. Perhaps we imagine that we would be rescuers in some future catastrophe. Yet, if states were destroyed, local institutions corrupted, and economic incentives directed towards murder, few of us would behave well. There is little reason to think that we are ethically superior to the Europeans of the 1930s and 1940s, or, for that matter, less vulnerable to the kind of ideas that Hitler so successfully promulgated and realized. The Holocaust began with the idea that no human instinct was moral. Hitler described humans as members of races doomed to eternal and bloody struggle among themselves for finite resources. Hitler specifically, and quite wrongly, denied that agricultural technology could alter the relationship between people and nourishment. Hitler's alternative to science and politics was known as Lebensraum, which meant habitat or ecological niche. Races needed evermore Lebensraum, room to live, in order to feed themselves and propagate their kind. Nature demanded that the higher races overmaster and starve the lower. Since the innate desire of each race was to reproduce and conquer, the struggle was indefinite and eternal. At the same time, Lebensraum also meant living room with the connotations of comfort and plenty in family life. The desire for pleasure and security could never be satisfied, thought Hitler, since Germans take the circumstances of the American life as the benchmark. Because standards of living were always subjective and relative, the demand for pleasure was insatiable. It confused lifestyle with life itself, generating survivalist emotions in the name of personal comfort. As Hitler himself knew, there was a political alternative to ecological panic and state destruction. The pursuit of agricultural technology at home, rather than Lebensraum abroad. The scientific approach to dwindling resources which Hitler insisted was a Jewish lie, in fact held much more promise for Germans, and for everyone else, than an endless race war. Scientists, many of them Germans, were already preparing the way for the improvements in agriculture known as the Green Revolution. Ecological panic and state destruction might seem exotic. After two generations, the Green Revolution has removed the fear of hunger from the emotions of electorates and the vocabulary of politicians. Yet, we like our living space. We fantasize about destroying governments. We denigrate science. 
we dream of catastrophe. If we think that we are victims of some planetary conspiracy, we edge towards Hitler. Once standard of living is confused with living, a rich society can make war upon those who are poorer in the name of survival. Tens of millions of people died in Hitler's war, not so that Germans could live, but so that Germans could pursue the American dream. Though the world is not likely to run out of food as such, richer societies may again become concerned about future supplies. Their elites could find themselves, once again, facing choices about how to define the relationship between politics and science. As Hitler demonstrated, merging the two opens the way to ideology that can seem to both explain and resolve the sense of panic. In a scenario of mass killing that resembled the Holocaust, leaders of a developed country might follow or induce panic about future shortages and act preemptively, specifying a human group as the source of an ecological problem, destroying other states by design or by accident. There need not be any compelling reason for concern about life and death, as the Nazi example shows. Only a momentary conviction that dramatic action is needed to preserve a way of life. In much of the world, the dominant sense of time is coming to resemble, in some respects, the catastrophism of Hitler's era. During the second half of the 20th century, the future appeared as a gift that was on the way. The dueling ideologies of capitalism and communism accepted the future as their realm of competition and promised a coming bounty. In the plans of government agencies, the plot lines of novels, and the drawings of children, the future was resplendent in anticipation. This sensibility seems to have disappeared. In high culture, the future now clings to us, heavy with complications and crises, dense with dilemmas and disappointments. In vernacular media, films, video games, and graphic novels, the future is presented as post-catastrophic. Nature has taken some revenge that makes conventional politics seem irrelevant, reducing society to struggle and rescue. The Earth's surface grows wild, humans go feral, and anything is possible. Hitler the politician was right that a rapturous sense of catastrophic time creates the potential for radical action. When an apocalypse is on the horizon, waiting for scientific solutions seems senseless, struggle seems natural, and demagogues of blood and soil come to the fore. Hitler denied that science could solve the basic problem of nutrition, but assumed that technology could win territory. It seemed to follow that waiting for research was pointless, and that immediate military action was necessary. In the case of climate change, the denial of science likewise legitimates military action rather than investment in technology. If people do not take responsibility for the climate themselves, they will shift responsibility for the associated calamities to other people. We know that it is easier and less costly to draw nourishment from plants than animals. We know that improvements in agricultural productivity continue and that the desalination of seawater is possible. We know that efficiency of energy use is the simplest way to reduce the emission of greenhouse gases. We know that governments can assign prices to carbon pollution and can pledge reductions of future emissions to one another and review one another's pledges. We also know that governments can stimulate the development of appropriate energy technologies. Solar and wind energy are ever cheaper. Fusion, advanced fission, tidal stream power, and non-crop-based biofuels offer real hope for a new energy economy. In the long run, we will need techniques to capture and store carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. All of this is not only thinkable, but attainable.
States should invest in science so that the future can be calmly contemplated. The study of the past suggests why this would be a wise course. Time supports thought. Thought supports time. Structure supports plurality. And plurality, structure. This line of reasoning is less glamorous than waiting for general disaster and dreaming of personal redemption. Effective prevention of mass killings is incremental, and its heroes are invisible. No conception of a durable state can compete with visions of totality. No green politics will ever be as exciting as red blood on black earth. But opposing evil requires inspiration by what is sound rather than by what is resonant. The pluralities of nature and politics, order and freedom, past and future, are not as intoxicating as the totalitarian utopias of the last century. Every unity is beautiful as image, but circular as logic, and tyrannical as politics. The answer to those who seek totality is not anarchy, which is not totality's enemy, but its handmaiden. The answer is thoughtful, plural institutions, an unending labor of differentiated creation. This is a matter of imagination, maturity, and survival. End quote. My aim in including this topic was primarily to draw attention to it. A majority of my favorite media does appear preoccupied with building worlds immediately prior to or shortly after mass destruction, and we see the harm that that can cause from this article. Is there something to be gleaned from all of this? Are dystopias a kind of thought experiment preparing us to avoid the unspeakable? Or do we need to move on? Is our fascination with disaster desensitizing us to the forces already in motion? The plate tectonics of politics and culture? Ultimately, does picturing a dystopia make that reality more or less likely? I have this general idea that time is very important. The time is something that changes, or how we see time changes. You know, in the, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I don't have any real sophisticated analysis of this, so I'll just report that in the 70s and the 80s, science fiction was mostly about a better future. It was mostly about, you know, it might be about new dilemmas that technology created, but, but generally the idea was that you were, in, there was a future and things, and things in many respects were, were better. So time was going to go forward and things were going to get better. And then, I mean, I'm not sure when, you know, but somewhere in the 2000s this turns around and, 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 and science fiction starts to be pretty much generally, pretty much post-catastrophic. And admittedly it's a lot better now. <laughs> science fiction, I think, is better as a genre. And yeah, well, you're right with films. I mean, it's like basically a starting point for a film now that there has to be, there has to be either an apocalypse or you're already after the apocalypse. Like those are your two choices. The apocalypse is coming or it just happened basically. And then you start your, your romantic comedy or whatever from that point. You know, I think it's really damaging. And I mean, I, I mean, I enjoy it like everybody else, but I, I think it's, I think it's damaging because, you know, in order to have, in order to think about what you should do with your life as a person or as a citizen, you have to be able to think about the future in terms of the next year, the next five years, the next ten years. And if all we're thinking about is the catastrophe, then it's really hard to make plans. It's also just hard to form yourself as a personality because you can think, well, you know, why should I be planning or why should I be building my own character when, you know, the, the meteor is going to strike Earth or the oceans are going to rise or whatever whatever it's going to be. And, you know, the truth is there might be disasters, but we are all going to have to live our lives, you know, over the next few years and the next few decades. So I, I worry a lot. I mean, this is in a way what the whole Road to Unfreedom book is about. It's about how what I call the politics of inevitability, you know, the idea that everything has to get better gives way to something which I call the politics of eternity, where we all just think we're doomed. Um, and, that it's not, and that it's not our fault and we can't really do anything about it except talk about how wonderful we are. 
Um, and I can, you know, I, I kind of feel that tilt in the United States now. And I think the real challenge is to try to think of ways to, 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 to beat out some kind of vision of the future which doesn't depend on utopia and doesn't depend on progress, but which is still about the future. You know, which we're still thinking about how things are going to be better for us in five years or, or ten years. That's, it's not easy. Um, but I think, in a way, I think that's the whole, that's the whole name of the game. You know, that, the, the, the dystopia is usually accompanied by a withdrawal from life, right? And we have to find some way, you know, and then that makes dystopia more likely if everybody withdraws from life. If we all withdraw because we think there's going to be dystopia, well then there is going to be a dystopia in some form. So we have to think of ways, and I don't know if they are, and I mean, honestly, I'm counting on younger people to figure this out, but we have to think of ways um, to engage and, and thereby create time, you know, to create a sense, like to push outward so that there is a sense that there's going to be a next year, there's going to be a five years, there's going to be a ten years from now. This is something to pay attention to if you're involved in imaginative, creative projects. Notice your world-building instincts. Aim to design original, engaging work that creates this sense of time Professor Snyder mentions. Don't make it easier for us to collectively withdraw from life. Moving on. Lesson three of On Tyranny is beware the one-party state. Quote, The parties that remade states and suppressed rivals were not omnipotent from the start. They exploited a historic moment to make political life impossible for their opponents. So support the multi-party system and defend the rules of democratic elections. Vote in local and state elections while you can. Consider running for office. End quote. In reading On Tyranny, I realized how little I knew about the U.S. Constitution. I'd studied it in high school, of course, but had never revisited the document since then. So that's exactly what I decided to do. I want to take this moment to quickly thank my senior year political science teacher, Miss McQuillan, for the pocket copy of the Constitution she generously gifted each of us in the class. I still have mine, and that's what I used for my research. I dug into the Constitution, scouring it from top to bottom for mention of the two-party system, but there wasn't any. Amendment 12 deals with elections, but there was no specification for multiple parties. Moving my research to the computer, I came across Duverger's Law, which offers up explanation for why two parties are favored in plurality rule elections, basically stating that weaker parties fuse into one of two factions or face total elimination. Larger parties absorb smaller contenders. Despite this law of political science, I wondered why Professor Snyder had written what he did. If two parties are not specified by the U.S. Constitution, why does it need to be that way? Would unifying politicians under a single banner be such a bad thing? I described a scenario in which two centrist candidates emerged, or even an election in which two Republican presidential candidates were more reasonable than the Democrats, or vice versa. Why would that be so dangerous? The, the, the danger of a, of a one-party state is that if you if you have a one party state that means that the party and the state become the same thing, and then democracy becomes meaningless because there's no there's no possible competition you know so you can imagine one election that happens the way you're talking about where you know just by chance the presidential candidates and all the all the congressional candidates are all reasonable people somehow but then the, if if they know they're going to win they're not going to be reasonable people two years down the road. Um, the only way that you keep people reasonable, and this is the wisdom of the Constitution, is that you 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 check them with electoral competition. Um, this is why we have regular elections. So uh, the danger of the one-party state is 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 the danger of total corruption. If there's not if there's not a rival, even the best people are going to be corrupted extremely extremely quickly. And I mean we we can see this. This is one of these really big um, clear historical lessons that. 
whenever you have one-party situations, whether they're ideological parties like fascist parties or communist parties, or whether they're not particularly ideological parties like you know, the main party in Russia, whenever you get to a one-party state situation, the one-party the, the one party mixes itself in with the state structures until it becomes, it becomes inextricable. So you know, when, in the U.S., what, what one worries about, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a huge fan of the two parties that we have. And that's not the point. The point is that um, if we get to a situation where one of them wins all the time, then that one party doesn't have to communicate with us. Um, if that one party wins because of voter suppression or because of gerrymandering or because it just has a whole lot more money than the other party, then it stops communicating with the people. And then democracy becomes meaningless, and then people think democracy is meaningless and they don't vote, and then we're, and then we're in a, a different system real fast. Political competition is a positive thing. It prevents the consolidation of power. Excessive power corrupts. If there is something you'd like to see in the world, Take Professor Snyder's advice from On Tyranny and consider running for office. The possibility of gaining support and working from within the system is not so far-fetched as you might think. An organization called Run for Something is committed to recruiting and supporting talented, passionate young people who will advocate for progressive values now and for the next 30 years, with the ultimate goal of building a progressive bench. They'll take a chance on people the usual institutions might never encounter. They'll help people run for offices like state legislatures, mayorships, city council seats, and more. The bottom line is that they'll do whatever it takes to get more under 35-year-olds on the ballot. You can learn more about the organization at runforsomething.net, and I honestly hope you do. Whether or not you would personally run for political office, voting is critical. Participating in regular elections and making informed decisions are strong means of ensuring a flourishing democracy. You need to know what you value in a representative. To know what problems we face and who is best positioned to address them, we have to keep an eye on the developments of our time. This is easier said than done, as most media can quickly become a slipstream to find yourself lost in. When so many things are going on, and so many of them going wrong, how can we pay much attention to anything? In Professor Snyder's appearance on the Waking Up podcast with Sam Harris, he brought up this very question. Sam highlighted a criticism of On Tyranny, which is that it exaggerates the danger of Trump, and he wondered how Professor Snyder felt the book had been aging over the first few months of the Trump presidency. The interview was published in late May of 2017. He asked if anything had reassured Professor Snyder, or if he was exactly where he had been when hitting send to the publisher. Professor Snyder responded, quote, the whole point of the book is that we have to spread out our political imagination and have a broader sense of what's possible, and that the danger, precisely, is that we just go day by day, and then every day seems normal, even if today is much worse than yesterday. We're very good at getting used to today, and then tomorrow, the same thing happens. End quote. I loved that answer, and it was a perfect response coming from a historian. I mentioned rip currents by way of comparison. It's a little cheesy, but it's appropriate because the analogy is clear. When I learned to swim in the ocean, I was taught to always keep an eye on the shoreline. If you use your personal belongings or a part of the landscape as your marker, you'll notice when there's a strong current, because you've suddenly been pulled away from that spot. I asked Professor Snyder what marker we can use in politics, so we see when we're being pulled away from our values and swept out into a sea of tyranny. That marker 
it can be one place and it can be another place, but the important thing is that it's there. Like the marker you lay down on the beach, it could be 100 yards this way, it could be 100 yards that way, it could be a tree, it could be a rock. Like, that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that it's there and that you see it as a marker. And in a way, that's, that's, my, that's my answer to your question. It, the marker has to make sense to the person concerned. So, you know, it can be um, how the president talks. It can be, you know, how how people we know behave. The marker can have to do with how people treat each other. But basically, I think the key, you know, if I would use your analogy, I would say that no, almost no matter what your marker is, if you've got a marker at all, you recognize that this is not normal, you know, that the current is pushing us and you have to swim. Um, and I guess the vision that I would like to see is that, you know, thousands of people with different markers are all, recognize that we're all kind of trying to go against the current here, um, even if where we're trying to get isn't exactly the same. Um, because we're not, we don't have, we don't have agreement about that, and that's normal. But if we can, you know, if people can agree that uh, you've got a marker and I've got a marker, and we all see that there's a current here, and we need to work against it, you know, together. I think, I think that would be, that would be the right, that'd be the right, you know, because it, because the, 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 like this with the swimming analogy, you kind of have to look around and see that other people are doing it too. You know, like uh. it's not just oh, I'm going to drown by myself or I'm going to swim. You know, it's not that. It's that we're we're all going to make it or we're not all going to make it. Um, and, and for us, but for there to be a lot of us out there, we all have to have our own, we have to have markers that make sense to us. Going all in on this analogy, I'm going to read part of an article titled How Rip Currents Work by Tom Harris of the acclaimed How Stuff Works platform. As you listen, let it serve as a metaphor for politics and culture in your mind. I'll also pitch in with a few translations that occur to me. This can help you navigate the waters of the world more calmly, or, if nothing else, possibly save your life in a literal ocean. Quote, Rip currents occur when water rushes through a low point in a sandbar. Some rip currents are brief occurrences, but others are long-term fixtures of an area. Typically, the strongest part of a rip current is the direct line between the water's edge and the sandbar opening, but the current will also pull in water from either side of the basin. In this way, a rip current might pull you sideways, parallel to the beach, before it pulls you outward, away from the beach. Translation. Dangerous groups and ideologies can sprout up anywhere, and they're often hard to see right away. You may not worry about being pulled directly away from your values, but you need to watch out for that gradual drift. Quote. If you get caught up in a rip current, it's crucial that you keep your wits about you. Your first instinct may be to swim against the current, back to shallow waters. In most cases, even if you're a strong swimmer, this will only wear you out. The current is too strong to fight head-on. Instead, swim sideways, parallel to the beach. This will get you out of the narrow outward current, so you can swim back in with the waves helping you along. If it's too hard to swim sideways while you're being dragged through the water, just wait until the current carries you past the sandbar. The water will be much calmer there, and you can get clear of the rip current before heading back in. Translation. Be patient. Our fight will be a long one. Appreciate that you're not always in the right position to tackle a particular problem. But when you are, recognize that. Strike surgically and act strategically. Quote, People drown when they thrash about in the water or expend all of their energy swimming. To survive a rip current or any crisis in the water, 
you have to keep calm, and you have to conserve your energy. If you don't think you can swim all the way back to the beach, get past the rip current and tread water. Call for help. Signal to people on the beach, and, if all else fails, wait for the waves to carry you in. Translation. Take care of yourself. Don't try and correct every problem at once, because you can't. It goes back to the earlier point about focusing on one thing at a time, and trusting that you can accomplish more in the long term by systematically moving from task to task, rather than chasing every loose end to tickle your imagination. And again, act strategically. If something upsets you, do something about it by attacking it, but don't violently thrash about the waters of social media attacking everyone. You'll expend all of your energy in that echo chamber and drown. Quote, if you're on the beach and see somebody else caught in a rip current, call for help from a lifeguard or the police. Don't immediately dive in and swim out to the person. It's too risky to swim out there yourself unless you have a raft, boogie board, or life preserver with you. Translation. Understand that you cannot solve every problem. If you have a friend or acquaintance being pulled into dangerous ideologies, turn to others for help in getting them back especially if you know someone who has dealt with a similar situation or received some formal training. Quote, The most effective way to fight rip currents is to follow basic swimming safety rules. Never go in the ocean alone. And if you aren't a strong swimmer, stick to shallow water, although even shallow waters can be dangerous. Ideally, you should only swim in areas where there is a lifeguard or strong swimmer on the beach who can keep an eye on you. Translation, Have a community around you. Stick together, talk to each other, and listen. Discuss meaningful topics that break through surface-level chatter, especially if it's uncomfortable at first. Connect with mentors, and study the work of individuals like Professor Snyder. His way of escaping the current is engaging in intellectual work, teaching classes, giving talks, and writing books. The upcoming book is called The Road to Unfreedom, available everywhere on April 3, 2018, and now for pre-order. I asked how On Tyranny set the stage for this new addition to his expanding library. Yeah, it's a good question because the two books are very much interrelated. I, 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 for the last couple of years, I thought I was writing a book which was about uh, Russia and Ukraine in the 2010s, about how Russian politics had been transformed and, and why the revolution in Ukraine took place, what the Russian invasion of Ukraine was like, and drawing some general lessons for the West, because I could see some connections between those events um, of 2011, 12, 13, 14 with Brexit and with the Trump campaign. That's what I thought I was doing. And a year ago, um, in November of 2016, I thought I was done with that book. Um, but then Trump won the elections, and then I wrote, then I wrote on tyranny. Um, and I've spent most of the last year talking about American politics. But what that's what that's led to is another chapter of the book that I thought I was done with, which is chapter six, which is about um, about Trump, but much more broadly, not even really about Trump, it's much more broadly about the Russian campaign in the U.S. Um, to get Trump elected, and perhaps more importantly, why that campaign worked. So it's about American inequality and American media and some of the problems with the American political system. So on tyranny interrupted, the book, which is now called Road to Unfreedom. What I knew about Russia and Ukraine, what I was thinking about, affected on tyranny, but then talking about on tyranny for a year in America helped me to write the last chapter of Road to Unfreedom. That's where we are. 
I've personally come to take a great deal of inspiration from Professor Snyder to apply in my own creative work. Lesson 11 of Aunt Tyranny, Investigate, has helped shape my intentions in recent months, with both what I consume and what I produce. Quote, Figure things out for yourself. Spend more time with long articles. Subsidize investigative journalism by subscribing to print media. Realize that some of what is on the internet is there to harm you. Take responsibility for what you communicate to others. Generic cynicism makes us feel hip and alternative, even as we slip along with our fellow citizens into a morass of indifference. It is your ability to discern facts that makes you an individual, and our collective trust and common knowledge that makes us a society. The individual who investigates is also the citizen who builds. A brief aside, that's probably my favorite line in the entire book. The individual who investigates is also the citizen who builds. Back to the text. The leader who dislikes the investigators is a potential tyrant. We need print journalists so that stories can develop on the page and in our minds. When we learn from a screen, we tend to be drawn in by the logic of spectacle. When we learn of one scandal, it whets our appetite for the next. The better print journalists allow us to consider the meaning, for ourselves and our country, of what might otherwise seem to be isolated bits of information. But while anyone can repost an article, researching and writing is hard work that requires time and money. Before you deride the mainstream media, note that it is no longer the mainstream. It is derision that is mainstream and easy, and actual journalism that is edgy and difficult. So try for yourself to write a proper article involving work in the real world, traveling, interviewing, maintaining relationships with sources, researching and written records, verifying everything, writing and revising drafts, all on a tight and unforgiving schedule. If you find you like doing this, keep a blog. In the meantime, give credit to those who do all of that for a living. Another brief aside, this has really inspired me to pursue journalism. I think it's the young rebel in me. Paired with the emerging adult, I want to do something edgy and difficult. Back to the text. Journalists are not perfect, any more than people in other vocations are perfect. But the work of people who adhere to journalistic ethics is of a different quality than the work of those who do not. We find it natural that we pay for a plumber or a mechanic, but demand our news for free. If we did not pay for plumbing or auto repair, we would not expect to drink water or drive cars. Why then should we form our political judgment on the basis of zero investment? We get what we pay for. If we do pursue the facts, the internet gives us enviable power to convey them. Since in the age of the internet we are all publishers, each of us bears some private responsibility for the public's sense of truth. If we are serious about seeking the facts, we can each make a small revolution in the way the internet works. If you are verifying information for yourself you will not send on fake news to others. If you choose to follow reporters whom you have reason to trust, you can also transmit what they have learned to others. End quote. Naturally, it's now time to include examples of journalistic integrity. I asked Professor Snyder about his sources of news media. From Slate's Live at Politics and Prose podcast, I knew he read transcripts. Quote, I think it's a lot healthier to read transcripts because you pick up more of what people are saying. You're less likely to be fooled by delivery mechanisms and so on. And also, 
You control when you read transcripts, and other people control when stuff is broadcast. End quote. During our interview, he echoed those ideas and added more about his reading habits. Insofar as I have an idea what's going on today, it's largely because I try not to get trapped in the news cycle. You know, I make sure to read a few pages of novels every day. And, I, you know, I'm a historian. I read history books, which are obviously not about today. I try to have ideas in my mind, which then help me to see so that I'm not just overwhelmed by, you know, the pictures and the words of the day. Because that's what we're supposed to do, right? I mean, we're supposed to get overwhelmed by the pictures and the words of the day. We're supposed to get overwhelmed by that current that you're talking about. Um, and the only way not to is to be reading your own stuff. And that really means reading offline, going back to your other question. Because when we get online, we just we, we tend to get pushed around and end up doing things we didn't plan to do. So, I mean, I get, it's not so much information, I mean, I do get, I'll tell you how I get my information, but the information is, is maybe less important than, than, than having some ideas and having some, some concepts and having some language, which doesn't come from today. Because if you're just starting, if you're, if you're trying to talk about today with the stuff you get from today, it's very hard to think. And it's very, it's very easy to get manipulated and, and to fall into some kind of, you know, fall into some kind of, um, group consciousness, which you're, you know, which you're supposed to fall into. So, I mean, as for how I get my information, yeah, I mean, that you mentioned transcripts. I try really hard not to watch speeches, and I try not to watch TV news because it just takes so long, and there's so little in it. You know, I mean, if somebody gives an important speech, I try to read it because that's it's easier than to figure out what's going on. Like the president's inaugural address, I've read a, I've read a few times, um, and it's worth reading not because it's good, but because it's terrifying. But you get you you can think about things, you get more distance on them when you when you read the transcript. But yeah, I mean, I you know, I read. I read I what I what I read are reporters. I read I have I have reporters that I like, you know, some of them some of them work right for BuzzFeed, some of them write for um for Vox, some of them write for The Guardian, some of them write for the Washington Post. But what they have in common is that they're actual people who actually go out into the world and do stuff. And I feel like when I'm reading them, I, you know, that that means I'm connecting myself to the world and to somebody else who's trying to figure out the world as opposed to just connecting myself to the screen or connecting myself to somebody who's trying to push my emotions around. The information is less important than the concepts. Don't fall into group consciousness. Familiarize yourself with the human beings in journalism and read their writing with your knowledge of their ethics and intentions in mind. Also, read fiction. Read history. Read books, articles, and essays from every era to reinforce your modes of understanding the present moment. Lesson 9 of On Tyranny is Be Kind to Our Language. Quote, Avoid pronouncing the phrases everyone else does. Think up your own way of speaking, even if only to convey that thing you think everyone is saying. Make an effort to separate yourself from the internet. Read books. Staring at screens is perhaps unavoidable, but the two-dimensional world makes little sense unless we can draw upon a mental armory that we have developed somewhere else. When we repeat the same words and phrases that appear in the daily media, we accept the absence of a larger framework. To have such a framework requires more concepts, and having more concepts requires reading. So get the screens out of your room and surround yourself with books. End quote. Going off of that, gaining separation from the internet is a key to healthy life and strong democracy. This is explored in Lesson 14 of On Tyranny. Establish a private life. Quote, Nastier rulers will use what they know about you to push you around. Scrub your computer of malware on a regular basis. Remember that email is skywriting. Consider using alternative forms of the internet, 
or simply using it less. Have personal exchanges in person. What the great political thinker Hannah Arendt meant by totalitarianism was not an all-powerful state, but the erasure of the difference between private and public life. We are free only insofar as we exercise control over what people know about us and in what circumstances they come to know it. Whoever can pierce your privacy can humiliate you and disrupt your relationships at will. No one, except perhaps a tyrant, has a private life that can survive public exposure by hostile directive. End quote. There's a negative way and a positive way of looking at this. The, neg- the negative way is that you're, you're giving a system data about you and the system knows how to use it. And this can be pretty sinister. It can, it can lead to feedback where you end up being manipulated without knowing that you're being manipulated because you're not as smart as the machines. You know, you, I mean, you might be if you concentrate all the time, but we, the whole point of going on the Internet is to not concentrate and to just kind of let yourself drift. The, the positive way of thinking about it, which I like better, is trying to create yourself as an individual. Um, you know, I mean, for example, an individual who influences the Internet rather than the other way around. But to do that, you have to first do something in the real world, or you have to have your own reading habits. I mean, like, it's so, it's so simple and so dumb, but just the idea of starting by reading The Guardian, or starting by reading The Washington Post, or starting by reading a local newspaper, starting with that, you know, don't, don't start with Google or Facebook or Reddit um, or whatever it is that you guys start with. Start by reading the newspaper, and then find some article you like that's written by a real reporter who isn't really out in the real world learning about something, and take that link with you to the Internet, then you're affecting the Internet. I guess the third thing would be, like, the test of having a beer, right? Like, do you have a beer to go out and, like, do you have a beer to go out and have a good time? Like, is a beer a nice thing you do with your friends while you're having dinner or, like, while you're watching a baseball game or whatever? Or do you have a beer to sit with yourself and have nine beers? Like, there's a big difference, right? And so the Internet's like that. Do you go on the Internet in order to organize some good thing in the real world, right? That's like having the one beer with your friends. Or do you go on the internet to just be on the internet all day? And that's like having the nine beers and just sitting by yourself. It's really a lot like that. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, it, right, right, I mean, right down to the addiction problem. Yeah. You know, you like in the losing, the kind of losing yourself. And as you lose yourself every day, you also lose your ability to form yourself, to form yourself up as a person. Be conscious about your habits. The internet is a place to go, not a place to live. I want to include a few ways to protect ourselves in the digital age. For this, I'll turn to a familiar text. Tim Ferriss published a book in late 2016 titled Tools of Titans. It's a compilation of tactics, habits, and routines of world-class performers across many industries. The book also includes non-profile chapters that deal with individual topics in essay or list form. One of these chapters is called Tools of a Hacker, for which Tim Ferriss turned to his friend Sammy Kamkar for advice on digital security. Sammy is a well-known computer hacker in the United States. At one point, Tim explains, Sammy discovered illicit mobile phone tracking by Apple iPhone, Google Android, and Microsoft Windows Phone mobile devices, findings that led to class-action lawsuits against these companies and a privacy hearing on Capitol Hill. With this expertise, Sammy answered the question of how to protect ourselves individually against people with a digital skill set. I'll be relaying some of that information here. The quickest precaution is simply putting tape or a cover over your laptop camera, and perhaps your phone, when you're not using it. Hijacking those cameras is dangerously easy. Another quick safeguard against malware has to do with USB devices. 
do not plug in any USB you do not trust. Apparently, even e-cigarettes that charge via USB can carry malware. It's always safer to use a wall outlet rather than your personal computer. When it comes to monitoring your operating system, the tools NetLimiter on Windows or Little Snitch on OS X are useful for detecting software making outbound connections to the internet. You can see the applications doing so, and choose whether or not to block them. BlockBlock, on OS X, notifies you if a program is trying to install itself to run upon startup, even if it's hidden. It's a good precaution when downloading files from the internet. In terms of anonymizing yourself online, Tor, T-O-R, is a free cross-platform software that allows you to browse the internet anonymously and defend against network surveillance. It changes your IP address and encrypts your network communication. There's also the issue of metadata, which you may have heard about. When you take a picture with a smartphone, it typically records additional information within that image file, like GPS coordinates and the device used to take the photo. Anyone can recover that information if you send the image directly to them. Most social media sites delete metadata to uploaded photos, but a Kapersky article titled Do Your Online Photos Respect Your Privacy? lets us know that those services can store that metadata separately, however, to be accessed by the services themselves, law enforcement, and, potentially, hackers. I'll also add that if you need separation from social media, most of the popular services have options to disable your account temporarily rather than deleting it. Your profile is hidden until you log back in, at which point it's fully restored to the previous state. Just be sure to read their policy when you go to disable an account indefinitely. There are sometimes expiration dates where the account is deleted if not reactivated within a certain time frame. With that, we'll leave it there for today, folks. You've just heard an overview of my interview with Professor Timothy Snyder, Pick up a copy of On Tyranny for yourself. It's short, it's inexpensive, it'll fit in your pocket, and it's a sure way to set your sights on an honest democracy. Reach out with your thoughts and comments on the book. Also, keep an eye out for The Road to Unfreedom in April 2018. Timothy Snyder is on Twitter, at Timothy D. Snyder, and has a series of YouTube videos called Timothy Snyder Speaks. His website is timothysnyder.org. In this episode... We received actionable items, ranging from taking initiative with your direction in life to prioritizing travel. We pondered the role of dystopia in our culture and imagined the danger of a one-party state. We learned how to stay alive in the ocean and the slipstream of modern politics. We contemplated a more private, or at least more deliberate, life. If you enjoyed the episode, there's more like it on my website, chancebychance.com. There's also a newsletter you can sign up for on the website. One of my major takeaways from Professor Snyder was reading reporters, not just reporting. I'm going to find a journalist I admire and include a description of it in next Tuesday's email, along with a new episode featuring Enzo Vinholi, who joined me to talk about his virtual reality service like it was yesterday. You can contribute to my work at chancebychance.com forward slash support and also by sharing this episode. Get in touch at chance.gilliam at outlook.com. Until next time, thank you for listening. Hustle.